Check out these beautiful stained glass windows. They're in St. Vitus Cathedral. Since the 1300s, Czech royalty has been buried in this cathedral's crypt. This stone plaque commemorates Franz Kafka, born here in 1883 and one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. Now, allow me to quote. We stay grown up for too long, a certain weariness and hopelessness spreading from that. What a fun guy. following is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. 1994 was the year of off-the-beaten-path and obscure superhero movies, some successful and fondly remembered, and some not so much. The Mask was a comic book few people were aware of, but a movie everybody and his dog saw and was the fourth highest-grossing film of the year. As we've discussed before, that was a rare case of a project going a more family-friendly direction from its source material actually working in its favor, both narratively and commercially. And while The Crow was tonally similar to its comic book counterpart, it also took smart liberties that led to a smaller but substantial win for Miramax. The Shadow was a mixed bag that barely made its money back. And it's hard to tell how much of that had anything to do with the liberties it takes with its source material. Like The Rocketeer two years earlier, it was a decent superhero period adventure heavily marketed to kids and families that just didn't take the bait. The Mask was a right place, right time phenomenon. Both of those films seemed to come out at precisely the wrong time, or were made for and sold to the wrong demographics. But the success or failures of all of these movies seemed to live and die based much more on the sensibilities of the time, and in the case of The Mask, on star power, rather than on the popularity and accuracy to the comics that informed them. Thanks largely to Tim Burton's Batman, comic book stylized urban fantasy movies were popular, so studios were taking chances on properties the general public was unfamiliar with, selling them almost as if they were brand new. So this might have been the perfect time for something like Blank Man, a post-Batman 89 urban superhero spoof that was, unlike the other three major comic book movies of that year, completely original, though riddled with references to mainstream superhero properties, primarily Batman. I'd argue that were it not conceived of as a raunchy farce and was sold on its merits as a general superhero comedy to Batman fans, it might have appealed to an even wider audience than even The Shadow, but it performed the weakest of the four. Blankman scraped together less than $8 million in total. I assume it didn't come close to making its money back, though unusually, I can't find its budget anywhere online. It's rated PG-13, but its humor is too crude for young kids. Odd to see a movie with such a wholesome message rely so heavily on risque comedy. A genitalia joke intrudes upon the movie at such a consistent rate, it's as if there were a quota imposed on the film, like writers Damon Wayans and J.F. Lawton revised their script by dropping in one every five pages or so. It stars Wayans and David Alan Greer, both of whom were regular cast members on In Living Color, and this watch is a bit like the Saturday Night Live movies, where a sketch comedy idea is stretched to a 90-minute film and features the same brand of humor you'd expect from the show. Of course, some of those, like Wayne's World, transcend the sketch and become real movies, fresh, even poignant satires. Blank Man isn't based on a sketch, but if you told me it was, I'd believe you. The gag is the stereotypical, antisocial, fashion-challenged, but brilliant black nerd who grew up in a rough, big-city neighborhood and suddenly catches on to the violence, deciding to put on a costume and fight crime. He's Steve Urkel in a costume, and I'm not sure it was smart to call attention to that or not. 
In 94, everyone was going to compare this character to the one from Family Matters, and Daryl's brother calling him that disparagingly was probably the movie trying to acknowledge that they know it's a similar character so they don't look like they're ripping something off. I might have drawn the line at having Daryl actually say, did I do that in the third act? But anyway, I can imagine an inexhaustible number of comedy routines based on this premise. In each, I imagine Blankman might approach a situation as if he thinks he lives in a comic book world, and he's faced with an uglier, more complex world that refuses to coalesce to the paint-by-number scenarios of his four-color imagination. That's the appeal of the movie for me. It's a satire about modern cynicism that argues that we all have an opportunity to make decency and compassion commonplace through an outrageously idealistic protagonist who refuses to accept the status quo as just the way things are. It gets some comedy mileage out of society's resistance to his goody-goody attitude and his ultra-simplistic black-and-white view of the world. His answer to a crack house is to just knock on the door and tell everyone to knock it off. But he's endearing because he challenges the idea that pessimism is mature and optimism is childish. There's real potential for this movie to transcend the sketch concept and deliver some timely and much-needed commentary about social and political corruption, but it gets lost in the farce by the middle. The movie starts as a much smarter social satire and then degenerates into typical superhero fare, as if the world really has conformed to Blankman's imagination in the few weeks he's been a superhero. By the end, they should each find a middle ground. The world teaches Daryl that life is hard and things can't be as absolute as he'd like, and Daryl teaches the world that while it's hard in the moment, in the long run, the world doesn't have to be so gray. Initially, it really feels like that's where it's going, and I think if somehow every movie theater lost power, or only the front end of the reel was delivered to each critic's screening, it wouldn't have been so universally panned. I had an odd experience with this one I don't think I've ever had with another comedy. In the first half, I was enjoying the movie on a narrative level, but I wasn't laughing very much. In the second half, the movie lost me narratively, but it suddenly became a really funny comedy. Interesting that Jim Carrey, another In Living Color alum, solidified his A-list celebrity with a superhero comedy the same year these guys attempted to get a film career off the ground with one, and it failed to resonate. And they have some curious similarities. Both are PG-13 films intended for general audiences, but skew more adult with their humor. Both are about grown men who never quite grew up, have questionable fashion sense, are socially awkward around women, and are obsessively nostalgic about the television that defined them as children. Both are set in realities that are vaguely present day, but whose cities are plagued by 1920s mobsters, and both explore a double identity theme. Not just in generically featuring a hero with a secret identity, like a lot of superhero stories, but in the protagonist being dissatisfied with himself and struggling to make his ideal personal image a reality. Although Daryl isn't as disillusioned with himself as much as he is with the world around him. The big difference between them is that Stanley Ipkiss is a pushover who longs to make his mark on the world the way it is and wants to be someone else, whereas Daryl likes himself and longs to change the world. Stanley is a lot more like Daryl's brother Kevin. Yes, this is Daryl, but that's not his other brother Daryl, that's Kevin. Kevin is looking to society to tell him who he should be rather than being his own person and defining himself by his own standards, the way Daryl does, and the way Stanley comes to after his experiences with the mask. It's certainly not fair to compare the successes of each. Ace Ventura made Jim Carrey a potentially hot commodity, and The Mask was a major mainstream movie, while Blank Man didn't have that kind of star power and watches like a big-budget B-movie. It's also, like Meteor Man a year earlier, an original African-American superhero on the big screen, and it may have unintentionally alienated non-black moviegoers. I don't feel like I've walked into a party I wasn't invited to here, like this is a movie that only speaks to a particular ethnicity or cultural subset, but it was advertised 
recognized, at least to a degree, as a comedy for black folks. Even if it had been critically acclaimed, there's a good chance it still would have bombed at the box office. But it had every opportunity to be as good a comedy as The Mask if only the humor had been as well integrated into a thoughtful and well-executed story from start to finish like that film. The tough thing about making a movie about a guy who tries to be a superhero in the real world is deciding whether you're making a superhero movie or whether you're making a movie about a guy who wants to be a superhero. There's a distinction. Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man is the former. Defendor is the latter. You can make a mainstream drama or comedy, or dramedy even, about a guy who decides to put on a costume and save the world, who more or less lives in the same world you and I do with the same rules and same everyday problems, a world that's not very heightened or exaggerated. Or you can make a super hero movie, where a guy who ostensibly lives in the real world puts on a costume and it has similar rules as ours in that he's not going to get transformed by a radioactive spider or cosmic rays or wear a magic eye around his neck that allows him to control space and time, but it's still a fantasy where the good guy always wins because his heart is in the right place and the laws of physics tend to bend to his will. Now certainly lots of movies, especially action movies, look like our world, but there's a lot of movie logic that makes them more heightened. And a couple of isolated moments moments where somebody takes a fall without breaking his legs you couldn't in real life or makes a brilliant leap across buildings or between cars that would take a stuntman weeks of training to do don't translate to cartoon or comic book universe to me necessarily. But in this movie, we start in at least a somewhat grounded place and then the world gradually becomes the world blank man is imagining he lives in. And yes, very quickly I have to adjust my suspension of disbelief to include things like a solution you can dip synthetics in and bullets bounce off and an artificial intelligence inside a robot made out of a shop vac. But I'm less concerned with the looser laws of physics than I am with the increasingly unrealistic way people are behaving as the story progresses. It seems like every story that does the real-world superhero story treats it like it's the first time, like that's the twist on it this time. But we've been doing that to varying degrees in comics going way back. Spider-Man lives in a world of super science and extraterrestrials and magic, yet Stan Lee tried to make him a real person with everyday problems. That was a real-world superhero story in the sense that Peter Parker was a regular, flawed, complicated teenager, a real person for whom things didn't always go his way just because he was the good guy. And even when he did what he felt was the right thing, people didn't always appreciate or accept him. Blank Man is more like Spider-Man than it is like Kick-Ass. The world already looks a little like a comic book, but it's a world of moral ambiguity, and the lines between right and wrong aren't always as easy to see like they were in comics' golden age. Until suddenly the rules change, and it is that easy for Blank Man, who had to face that cruel world early on, and then it magically conforms to his world by the end, just because he takes out the bad guy, saves and gets the girl, and his name is in the title. Blank Man was marketed as a superhero spoof, but it doesn't watch to me that way at the beginning. It's a comedic story about a guy who loved Adam West Batman as a kid and tries to set Batman's uncompromisingly altruistic example when he comes to find that his community has given up. It's not simply a Batman parody because the Batman stuff comes from a character place. Daryl is inspired by Batman and has a little in common with him, like the gadgets he invents and the parental figure he lost to crime. A lesser movie might have just made this poor ghetto Batman, but Damon Wayans has a real idea, perhaps inspired in part by his own history, and all the parody elements are informed by our protagonist's personality and background, like the 60s Batman-inspired animated opening and the comic book words on the screen toward the end. 
We're seeing Daryl's adventures largely from his own perspective. He's a kid playing with action figures, providing his own theme music, and imagining the cinematography, which is why Minnelli and his goons are shot with Dutch angles in the climax. I would have liked the film to go further with some of that, to make Daryl's POV more explicit. I wish when Daryl hummed his own score, for instance, that the melody was actually in the soundtrack. Some of its more clever moments come from Daryl's naive expectations based on Batman, like when he goes to the police and demands to see the commissioner, just like Batman would when he's on a case, and he's first laughed at and then thrown in a jail cell for obstruction. But once we get into the typical third-act girlfriend kidnapping plot, the parody elements take over, and Blankman feels like he's just along for the ride, when he was the driving force of the action before. Yes, we're still getting some of those elements from his perspective, and I just praised some of them in that third act, but now too much of the story that's outside of Daryl's control is informed by superhero formula, and the storytelling attitude seems to have shifted from quirky but character-driven to, oh, we're making a superhero movie, how are those things supposed to end? I was taken in by the competency of storytelling and the efficiency of scene organization in the first act, as I was expecting more of a mindless farce based on the snippets of Blank Man I vaguely remembered seeing on TV as a kid. Those recollections are so vague, I assumed I must have been a lot younger than I really was when I saw it, and was surprised that it was released as late as 1994. It felt like an 80s movie to me, like Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. The opening flashback to Daryl and Kevin's childhood does a lot of legwork in establishing tone, theme, and characterization, and the next few scenes following logically build on that, which convinced me I was watching a real story and not just a throwaway spoof. Every choice in this first act feels conscious and thoughtful. For example, Kevin has a Bruce Lee poster in his room that's easily missed, but if you happen to notice it, you'll know when he brings up Bruce Lee in conversation later, that comes from the character's specific interests. The choice of the Batman episode Daryl and Kevin are trying to watch isn't arbitrary. It's the scene in The Bookworm Turns, when Batman says, never hit a man with glasses. Daryl's signature out-of-costume feature, of course, is his glasses, with a fork on one side to replace a missing part of his frame. Maybe he even got beaten up wearing them, and that's why they're in disrepair, but of course, we're given no indication of that, and he at least acts totally oblivious to the myriad dangers around his home. I also give the movie bonus points for using an actual episode from the Batman series and not the movie, because that's the obvious go-to for references, and it was rare to see footage of the series proper in other media. From that scene, we established Daryl's pension for coming up with inventive and unorthodox solutions to problems, often in the form of inventions that get the job done but are otherwise totally impractical. He manages to get a clear enough picture on the TV to watch the show, but he has to constantly flush the toilet in order to maintain the reception, which floods the house and infuriates his grandmother. The brothers' worldviews are later built on from what we learn here. Kevin's perceptions are based on cultural norms, while Daryl's are entirely his own, though influenced by his heroes. Kevin calls Daryl a nerd because he wants to fit in, and his peers see nerds as undesirable, so he doesn't want to be that. Daryl is independent and does what he thinks is cool, ignoring whatever is considered hip or normal to anyone else. And yet, Daryl doesn't like to be called a nerd or a geek, and Kevin imagines himself as a superhero just like his brother. Deep down, they both want to be accepted, at least by each other, and there's a part of each of them that want the same things. Daryl's foot in the toilet as he's trying to clear up the reception might be a deliberate message to the audience, too. The movie will always have one foot in the toilet as well. I also like how we're introduced to each principal character in present day. 
Daryl with his bizarre inventions, trying to improve the world and not remotely discouraged by the corruption outside his door, which has impacted everyone else around him and won't face him until it takes his grandmother, who is played by the chief from Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. We're introduced to Daryl trying to sneak a girl he just had a one-night stand with through the kitchen so his disapproving grandmother won't see them. But of course, he's no good at the cloak and dagger, and she's already acutely aware of what he's been doing. While Daryl is trying to improve the world, Kevin just wants to take as much as he can from it, because he doesn't believe in his own words that one man can make a difference. So what's the point in even trying? Their grandmother is a realist. Those two worldviews combined. She believes in a better tomorrow and in standing up to bullies and corruption, but she's not in denial about how things are now. In Daryl and Kevin, it's as if someone split those two ideas apart and personified them in separate people. She works for Alderman Harris's campaign for mayor, a man who fights against corruption and for working people, and surprisingly doesn't turn out to be a rotten apple himself. But while she's idealistic, she's down to earth, trying to set an example and put herself on the line for people she comes across in need, rather than just preaching about someone else who's trying to do that. She throws things at street kids terrorizing the neighborhood outside her door when people are being attacked and robbed right in front of people, and everyone is too afraid or self-absorbed to get involved. And I like the way we're introduced to Kimberly, the TV reporter love interest, naturally, who Kevin is horning in on and who Daryl slash Blinkman will eventually get involved with. Right away, it's clear she falls somewhere between Kevin and his grandmother on the cynicism chart. On the elevator, he says it's a nice day, and she points out the numerous awful things going on in the world, according to the newspaper, that say otherwise. I like his response. I just meant that the sun is shining. Kimberly hasn't accepted things the way they are like Kevin has, but she's not hopeful about any lasting change like his grandmother. That is, of course, until Blank Man comes along. There's an inherent commentary about identity and self-expression in contrasting the brothers that I really like. I don't mean to say that either character is incredibly layered, although I think Kevin could have been with a stronger third act and a finale that doesn't reduce him to the butt of a joke. But the movie is saying something about the correlation between innovation and optimism. You have to care about the future to creatively work toward a positive one, or else be motivated by some outside source, like a benefactor with a lot of cash. Daryl is creative because he looks forward to the future, and he lives on his own terms because he hasn't let any oppressive force tell him who he has to be or how he has to act. Meanwhile, Kevin isn't doing anything especially productive except making money for himself, and considering he still lives at home with his grandmother, he's not doing a great job of that either. I guess he's maybe making a little bit of bread. His top priority is getting laid, and second to that is moving up in the world of TV journalism. It's all about status. The irony is that the independent thinker, who's much more comfortable in his own skin, is the selfless one, while the selfish brother, who ostensibly is only out for himself, lets society define him and is dripping with self-doubt. The movie does a good job, though, of making it easy for me to root for Kevin even as his faults are on display from the beginning. He's the more down-to-earth of the two and serves as a sarcastic straight man in a comedy duo. Whenever he does the right thing, it's reluctantly, but his compassion always wins out, suggesting that empathy is a natural feeling and this everyone-out-for-himself mentality so many people in the city have is artificially imposed. The movie suggests that maintaining a certain amount of childhood innocence and a sense of wonder throughout adulthood is normal and healthy. When a psychologist psychoanalyzes Daryl with a Rorschach inkblot test and decides that despite Kevin's concerns based on Daryl's attempt at being a superhero, Daryl is completely normal. He's just a geek because he seems to know and care about everything except women. 
And there's, of course, the way he dresses. And no, he's never shown an ink blot that's obviously a bat or a mutilated dog, although I'm sure he would go into explicit detail about each if he were. It's Kevin the psychologist thinks is out of his gourd, and he does have reason to think Kevin's not quite right, what with his talking into his belt buckle and such, but this reinforces the notion that a bright outlook and looking out for other people should be considered normal behavior, not strange and alien, just because it's easier to only look out for yourself. The trouble is, sometimes the movie is saying Daryl is misunderstood and it's the rest of the world that's confused and backwards, and sometimes he seems mentally handicapped and it plays it for comedy. Up until the bank robbery scene, Blankman's influence on the community is more or less a realistic one. He's not taking down organized crime right away, that's his goal because that's what led to his grandmother's death. The alderman wouldn't take a million dollar donation and allow himself to be put in Manelli's pocket, so his thugs shut up the place to send home a message. But before Daryl pulls a Batman Begins Bruce Wayne and tries to to eliminate the threat at the heart of his tragic backstory, he does what a lot of real-life superheroes do today. He puts on a costume and performs a lot of acts of community service. His first public outing as Blank Man is helping a pregnant woman trapped on an elevator deliver a baby. His actions are referred to as a community service, and he's honored by the mayor, not as a vigilante, but as a public servant. And he can't be blamed for taking the law into his own hands and acting as an anarchist, because the police are refusing to do their jobs on account of not being paid by the city for the last several weeks and working on IOUs. Though I'm not sure why things are so bad the city can't afford or just refuses to pay its workers, and why the new mayor is able to snap his fingers and get them their money at least until Manelli decides to rob the bank. Especially at this time, it's a rare superhero movie that comes up with a way to take the police off the board without just making them incompetent. And this one works that into its thematic crux. The police are apathetic and unmotivated because they work solely for their own benefit. So Blankman has to remind the city what their jobs are and why they're supposed to be doing them. He says he has no interest in recognition and he sends back every donation from his fans while the police won't work unless they're being paid. He only accepts junk to help him assemble his apparatus in fighting crime. That's another contrivance to make the superhero stuff work. It's hard to buy he'd get so much junk he could build an elaborate secret lair and his own personal railway car, but I like that his ideology is at the heart of why he gets that stuff. By the end, the movie just is and is thoughtful, and it makes Daryl look like a crazy person whose heart is in the right place, but who ought to be a danger to himself and everyone around him. He just gets lucky that he's not. His first night on patrol, he comes upon a prostitute getting physically harassed by her pimp for money she owes him. I, I think that's what's going on. He nobly puts himself in harm's way and says that if it comes down to it, he'll take her place, which I like. Sure, his $4.85 costume is bulletproof, but his face isn't. He has no martial arts expertise, so like kick-ass, he takes a beating. But he keeps coming back for more because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He still won't back down even when the pimp aims for his face, which isn't covered, and Kevin comes to his rescue in the nick of time. I get that his personal trademark is totally impractical inventions, but if he's not a complete idiot, wouldn't he consider a face mask that covers his whole head after that, one coated in his bulletproof but likely highly radioactive soup? His main inspiration is Batman, after all, who, you know, wears a full face mask. In the climactic action scene, Manelli's men try to aim for his face because they know he's not protected there. And worse, he doesn't bother to treat his brother's costume with the bulletproof serum either. And he gets shot! 
There's also the Blank Man No More period, where Daryl pulls a Peter Parker and puts his costume away, he thinks, for good. After Minnelli blows up the bank and the mayor is killed, the entire city, which banded together to support Blank Man, comically completely turns against him in looking for a scapegoat to blame, even though it was the police who gave Blank Man control of the situation in the first place, since they were all unwilling to risk their own lives. This is where my suspension of disbelief starts to unravel. Yes, this is an over-the-top satire, and it's about groupthink and brainwashing, but I had a hard time buying even here that everyone would simultaneously turn on him the way they do. This is a world with a few people left who have some common sense after all, and the only person besides his brother that believes in Blank Man after this is Kimberly, because we've established that she's looking for something to give her hope, and because she spent a couple hours with him at the Blank Station and thinks she knows what kind of man he is. On the other hand, this isn't much more ridiculous than the oversimplified way Spider-Man is often universally praised or maligned in the Raimi films. The real issue is that Daryl doesn't learn anything from this by the end. He doesn't have any more clue as to what's wrong with the society at the end than he does at the beginning. He gives up crime fighting because no one believes in him, and he joins the dispassionate, nondescript masses as a minimum wage earner at McDonald's. I like this bit. He's such an achiever and can't help but assert his personality wherever he is that he upsells at the register like mad and drives everyone crazy. Once Minnelli consults supervillainy for dummies and kidnaps his would-be girlfriend, Daryl becomes Blank Man once more, and is exactly the same as he was before. He should be a little more world-weary, I'd think, at this point, realizing that things have gotten serious and personal, and that he's really not in a Batman episode. The girl he's falling in love with is in jeopardy, and he's still acting like he's on TV and everything's gonna go his way. But a lot of the best comedy mileage comes from that stuff. My favorite line of the whole movie is in this section, when the brothers are in the lottery tank death trap, and Blank Man says, Stop being a pessimist! This tank is not half full, it's half empty! But he feels like he's really stagnated now. When he takes down Minnelli, pushing him on a cart through a bunch of doors until he cartoonishly slides right into the back of a paddy wagon, the whole city suddenly loves him again, and he's given the key to the city. He should really be skeptical of this. He got a dose of reality when his grandmother was murdered, so where is that here? That's not to say he shouldn't still be an optimist and still stand up for his values, but he should be less gullible, and he should realize he has a lot more work to do than he originally thought in helping people to trust each other, work for each other, and not put personal gain ahead of the common good. Who's to say the next time he's involved at a crime scene and things go south, he won't be blamed again? I'm reminded of the scene in The Return of Captain Invincible, when Captain Invincible decides the president has been corrupted by bureaucracy, and he can't really trust him like he thought he could. Like Blank Man, he's just being used to solve an immediate problem, and his message isn't getting through. That's the story of a washed-out hero who's been disillusioned with society and has to learn how to hope again, and to set that example so other people might help him change society's attitude. This starts as the opposite of that, the story of a man who lives in a similar rough-and-tumble world where justice rarely prevails and has to learn that things aren't so black and white while still holding to his principles. By the end, Daryl hasn't changed much, but somehow the world seems to have, just because he took down a mob boss. I don't really buy that. I also think there's a huge missed opportunity with the love story. Because Daryl gets the girl at the end, Kevin is thrown under the bus. It starts as a dual protagonist story, but by the end, Kevin, whose superhero alias ends up being Other Guy, is the sidekick the hero couldn't get anywhere without, but who we're supposed to laugh at because he doesn't get any recognition, and he's totally ignored in favor of Blank Man. I suppose some of that tracks with the beginning of his arc. He's a guy who wanted nothing but recognition, so once he does the right thing, he has to learn to accept that as its own reward. Ward, plus a Blank Man t-shirt. The guy who's getting all the praise and publicity is the one who never sought it. 
Okay, but then shouldn't he at least get the girl? Kevin and Kimberly have a spark at the beginning, and she considers dating him. She offers him the chance to get out of the tabloid basement and be her cameraman, but it's clear that if he plays his cards right, he's got a chance with her romantically. Through Kevin, she gets her exclusive interview with Blank Man, and she falls head over heels for him because he's a gentleman and she's attracted to his extreme altruism. But he's inexperienced and lacking in street smarts, and she's a big-time TV reporter. The movie doesn't convince me that she'd still be into him by the end, over a newly matured Kevin who lives in the same world she does but has proven he cares about and is willing to work for the same things Daryl does. In the Blank Station, she says Blank Man lives in a different and better world and she's attracted to that. But I don't think the movie does enough legwork to maybe buy that's what she wants over a real adult relationship, which she's unlikely to get with Daryl who doesn't know what an erection is, and the movie thinks that's hilarious. It comes off like she's supposed to be with the hero because she's the love interest and he deserves it. But Kevin's the one who's most gone through a real character arc and matured, and I found myself really wanting him to wind up with Kimberly because now he's become his own man and he's not just after a one-night stand like he was before. I also found myself liking her a lot at the beginning and seeing the potential for a fully drawn character with her when she's with Kevin in those early scenes. With Daryl, she becomes the girl in the comic book movie. I was also disappointed with this because I like how grown-up Kevin was about Daryl and Kimberly's relationship. It never turns into a dramatic love triangle. You can see the disappointment on Kevin's face when he finds out Kimberly and Daryl kissed, but he never blames his brother for stealing her away from him, nor does he even complain about it. I kind of think he earned a chance with her, and of course, she's a person and she can be with whomever she wants, but I don't buy Daryl as who she'd ultimately want a long-term relationship with. I also sort of like the idea of turning the dual identity conundrum on its head at the end. He thinks he's competing with himself for the girl like so many superheroes before him, but it turns out to be a non-issue because she lives in something closer to the real world. So she already knows Daryl and Blank Man are the same person, and she likes them both, because again, even though he's more confident as Blank Man, and it's useful to him to see himself as a different person in the costume, Blank Man is just a heightened version of Daryl. But she's never met Daryl. So how does she know? Did Kevin tell her, or did she deduce it because she could already tell who Kevin was under his domino mask, which in this world she should be able to do, and once she knew about his brother, she put it together? That last scene is unnecessarily rushed and it's awkward because it's suddenly trying to be clever with the superhero in the real world scenario again, but it's just been a superhero movie spoof the whole third act. I don't care for some of the raunchier humor in this movie. It's sold on that. I get that Waynes thinks that's a draw for his target audience, and I can get around the cruder stuff I just don't find funny because there's plenty here I'm laughing out loud at or at least find really clever. I love the robot falling down the stairs to come to the brother's rescue as they're about to drown in the lotto tank and how it's played for faux dramatic tension. I love that it changes modes via cartridges putting a Sega Genesis on the back, and I wish the movie got more mileage out of that. I consistently enjoy Kevin's blunt line deliveries. When Blank Man tries to save the mayor, Kevin says, This white man is gonna die. There's nothing you can do. That line isn't maybe inherently funny on the page, but the way Greer says the line had me in stitches. I also laughed at the absurdity of... Well, pretty much everything with Jason Alexander's Mr. Stone, Kevin's stone-cold and heartless wheelchair-bound boss, who represents everything about the society Kevin has felt roped into but resists. His wheelchair has a sidecar. 
I don't care who you are, that's funny. And when last we see him, Manelli has him chained up to the ceiling, wheelchair and all. I even like the cruel practical joke Kevin plays on him after his complete disregard for journalistic integrity, not to mention the feelings of his staff. Kevin makes him think he's going to die like the mayor did, pretending they didn't find the bombs in time. Again, that whole third act is really funny, and if that had been the whole movie, I'd probably enjoy it as much as I did the beginning on a totally other level. But I could do without a lot of the sexual humor, not just because it's not funny to me, but because a lot of it is intrusive and takes me out. These jokes are the most forced. For example, I realize she's giving birth, but would the woman Daryl and Kevin are helping really think she's grabbing a finger when she clings to Kevin's crotch throughout the delivery? That strikes me as weirdly contrived, and Daryl seems totally out of character when he says, I'm a father, a line that's there just to have him say something inappropriate and awkward. The thing I like most about Blank Man as a character is his ability to reinstill forgotten wonder in anyone he meets that isn't so far gone he's robbing a bank wearing satin. He reminds both Kimberly and his brother of their childhood awe at the new and unknown that they've all but lost in the daily grind. The tram cycle he builds is a really unique superhero vehicle, and there's some genuinely breathtaking photography of the city in those scenes. That vehicle represents Daryl's unique perspective, as we're seeing New York City in a totally different way. Daryl is a guy who's interested in everything, and intentional on the part of the filmmakers or not, his superhero name speaks to that. He gets the name because of a misunderstanding. When a reporter asks Kevin what Daryl's name is, and he still can't come up with one, Kevin says he's drawing a blank, ma'am. That's translated in print to blank man. The movie milks that for all of its comic worth, too. Like Batman, all of his equipment is called blank whatever it is. My favorite is the blank screen. Whenever Daryl needs information, he has only to stare at the blank screen. And I'm sure it's called Blank Man because it sounds a little bit like Batman. Again, I'm not sure if Wayne's thought of this, but I like the idea that the blank in Blank Man could stand for anything. He uses every kind of household item and piece of equipment you can think of. He could have been called everything but the kitchen sink man. He doesn't have a motif because he's every motif. Put anything in that blank and it probably applies at some point. It's not that Daryl doesn't know who he is and can't define himself. It's that he's unique. I like the idea that the guy who hasn't been corrupted by the system and brainwashed is just another cog in the machine doesn't have a label. I think Blank Man is maybe a more interesting watch now than it was in 1994. We've had more than 20 years of superhero movies since then. Some of the superhero tropes and motifs it's drawing from weren't really known to general movie audiences at the time. It's impossible to see this now and not think about a number of characters beyond Batman. At the time, the main things on your mind would likely be both 60s Batman, for obvious reasons, and Tim Burton's Batman, which we talked about. Kimberly both loses a shoe and thinks they're going to crash into a wall on the way into the hero's secret headquarters, which, for some reason, Daryl likens to the Fortress of Solitude rather than the Batcave, but that's neither here nor there. It's impossible to watch this now and not also think about Spider-Man. Daryl's grandmother is a lot more like Uncle Ben than she is like Bruce Wayne's parents in any iteration. She's a poor parental figure who isn't one of the hero's birth parents and is filled with street smarts and conventional wisdom. She raises him with strong traditional values, values he doesn't fully understand until she's killed. He doesn't blame himself for her death, but he does perhaps regret not realizing the reality of their situation earlier, and he grieves, like Peter, by trying to do something about it. As I alluded to earlier, the scene where he decides to stop being Blank Man is perhaps directly inspired by Spider-Man No More, which no one but comic readers would have picked up on at the time. And when compared to other urban superhero stories about people who put on costumes in a non-superpower world like Kick-Ass, it feels even a little ahead of its time. 
Blink Man is a deeply flawed but wonderfully entertaining movie, and I think there's a lot more to it than critics at the time gave it credit for. It's a movie I find myself enjoying at the end for totally different reasons than from the beginning, and I think either compromises were made that steered it away from the story it was telling initially, or else the script was in need of more revision. And not just to insert more phallic jokes. But I was pleasantly surprised by its satire and its clever and constant setup and payoffs. I'm giving Blank Man a 2.5 out of 4. What a nightmare. For a second I thought I was 